Under the radar means hearing about things you didn't know you needed to know until you hear them. It's a serious look. Hear about the issues that don't get the attention they deserve. Under the radar doesn't get caught up in the day-to-day. Surfacing issues that are not talked about in mainstream media. I think it's something that connects us to each other. Under the radar is all about discovery. I can be guaranteed voices I haven't heard before. But also the questions. Under the radar is one step ahead. I'm Callie Crossley. This week on Under the Radar with Callie Crossley, schools shift back to fully remote learning in Boston while parents and teachers seek innovative solutions. Plus, COVID-19 cases continue to spike in the state, further straining healthcare staffing levels. And for the first time ever, three jurists of color will soon serve on the Supreme Judicial Court of Massachusetts. These stories and more in our local news roundtable. Later in the show, a new twist on your typical city guidebook. Three local history buffs team up to create a people's guide to greater Boston. In terms of the stories that we tell, we very much feature and privilege the experiences of people of African descent, you know, women, workers, people on the ideological margins, right? People who are typically not centered in stories of greater Boston, but whose stories are central to the making of this region. Combining tourist attractions with underrepresented history, these three co-authors present a greater Boston that's different from what you've read in a history book. But first, joining me remotely, Gen Dumpshus, digital editor for the Boston Business Journal. Welcome back, Gen. Thank you. Seth Daniel, senior reporter with the Independent News Group, which includes the Chelsea Record and Revere Journal. Hello, Seth. Hello, Callie. And Sue O'Connell, political commentator for NECN and co-publisher of Bay Windows and the South End News. Hi, Sue. Hey, Callie. Well, we're beginning our conversation as we've just passed a very grim milestone, upwards of 250,000 deaths from COVID, and it just feels unreal. And the rate of of, uh, infection is now spiking all across the country. And one of the things that we know, Seth, is why COVID spread so rapidly and deeply in Chelsea, which was a hotspot Um, There's a new study of the public health data conducted by a public health doctoral student at Harvard's uh, T.F. Chan School of Public Health. Please tell me what uh, the study came up with. Yeah, so so Christina Alonso um, had joined uh, the governor's call for graduate students to help out in some way, and she found her way to Chelsea. And in doing so, she um, began looking at the cases during the surge. She looked at cases, uh, it was 3,302 cases in Chelsea from March 9th to August 3rd. And she crunched the numbers and um, she found out that one of the major reasons it spread so fast was the amount of time it took people to get tested. Um, And there are a lot of reasons for that. And Chelsea was a a perfect example for for why people wait. Um, It was uh, particularly for Hispanic and um, white um, residents in Chelsea. They took more than seven days from the first symptom until getting a result on their test. Now, we do remember that testing was a little sketchy uh, early on, but in Chelsea, it it came quick. So there were ample places to get tested. And the average she found was one day for a result. So that still leaves a number of days between feeling bad and getting a test. And um, the other factor in this was uh, the word we've all learned, which is asymptomatic. So there were a lot of people cruising around who were sick and didn't even know it. Um, 34% of the cases Um, that she studied in Chelsea were asymptomatic. So you have a lot of people not getting tested for many days, 
um, and you have a lot of people who are sick and don't even know it. And it was a, a brutal cauldron for the spread in Chelsea. And uh, one of the major reasons uh, she felt that that things took off so so quickly, and it actually became what at one time the hottest hotspot on the East Coast, even in some ways uh, statistically worse than the worst places in New York, New York City. Yes, and again, what is emphasized in this is one of the other reasons is there were so many essential workers. Now, people think of healthcare workers as frontline workers, but when we're talking about those essential workers, those are the people making the deliveries, the Instacart folks, uh, the driving the bus people, all of all of those jobs that we sort of take for granted the, because the services will be there. They're there because these people went to work uh, during the height of all of this. And... Um, and Chelsea was the home to many of them. Right. And, and, and for many of them, they just didn't, uh, they, they felt they didn't have a choice. Uh, they had to go into work. They had jobs that they couldn't, they couldn't work from home or they had bosses who said, well, if you, if you don't come in, you know, we're going to replace you with someone else. And, and for that person, that's, that, that could be the main breadwinner, the main person who brings in the money. So there was intense societal pressure to keep chugging along and, and ignore the symptoms. The, the one thing the pandemic, I think, has, has really shown is um, how fractured the economy truly is and uh, the pressures that are, are put on various levels of, of workers, um, especially the, the folks who, who uh, do some of the hardest work and, and, and uh, feel like they can't, they can't stop. Yeah. And, and Sue, so early on, as Seth pointed out, more testing was brought to Chelsea. A lot of people at first didn't go, furthering the delay, because they were suspicious, frankly, of uh, what is this? You know, um, yeah, right. And I mean, I, I've been working really hard to try and stay in the present regarding COVID and, and look forward to what we can do to continue to uh, improve and reduce um, negative outcomes and looking forward. But, you know, it's stories like this and data, data like this that just enrage me all over again about how so mismanaged uh, the response was to covid uh, and coronavirus at the beginning of the year, right? So where other nations, other Western and European nations were so far ahead of us with testing, uh, appropriate testing, testing you could trust, um, so far ahead of us in relief packages to uh, citizens so that if they, if, you know, they were at high risk or couldn't work, uh, they didn't have to go to work while they were sick or didn't have to go to work and put them in a high-risk category. So uh, I know this is data that's important as we look forward, especially the asymptomatic information that we know about a number of illnesses that you can be pre or asymptomatic uh, and still be very contagious. So that's important to know, especially as we go into this this winter, this dark, dark winter that we're all afraid of. Yeah. I wanted to insert one thing, too, um, in this study, which was interesting. And you can't look at this without um, talking about nursing homes and assisted livings. Chelsea has a huge population of older adults in those. And that's really what took Chelsea from a bad spot to a hot spot. Um, they were the amounted to the most deaths, the most cases. And really, um, we're talking, looking backwards about reform. We might need to look at the nursing home and assisted living industry and really think hard about how that all works. Well, that brings me to, um, again, your piece about healthcare staffing and the tremendous strain that the healthcare workers are under. We can imagine because uh, the COVID-19 cases are surging. 
but it's kind of a double whammy. So first of all, it's a pressure on them, and then there's a childcare issue. Sure, and this is uh, something that uh, Jessica Bartlett, uh, our our healthcare reporter, uh, really dug into, and she kind of she, she saw she saw the the trend of more and more CEOs, healthcare CEOs, were were talking about where they had to, um, you know, some people left the workforce or. The, there had to be layoffs because some of these healthcare workers were basically saying like, I, 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 can, I don't have the bandwidth to do this. And that is putting a further strain on uh, healthcare staffing levels, uh, particularly at a time when, when you know, they're already, they've been, they've been basically running a marathon since March. And, and here we are, we're, we're, uh, we're in November, still got a couple of months ahead. And the, the sector is really uh, showing signs of strain, particularly when it comes to, you know, health healthcare staffers trying to figure out, OK, I got to I got to take care of my kids. I have to take care of my family and I have to go into work. So, Sue, UMass Memorial Healthcare, according to this story, has approximately a thousand jobs open right now. That's just one place. You know, this is I don't see how it's sustainable across the state when we're looking at when I just said at the beginning, you know, nationwide, um, we've we've passed a grim milestone, but but locally we have too. Right. And and the the piece too, I think, which is is isn't uh, necessarily explicitly stated, but most of the people I I guess who have had to leave the workforce are women, right? Yeah. They're women who have left to take care of the kids because the kids can't go to school. They've left to take care of their parents because there's no support system to take care of their parents if they're ill or, you know, someone's got to do it and it's going to fall on usually the moms that have to do it. So not only are we looking at a, uh, a, a grim prediction of healthcare workers uh, taking care of us if we get sick, we've also got the, 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 the trauma that they're going to have and the emotional and mental challenges that they will have on their well-being once we get on the other side of the pandemic. And we have women leaving the workforce yet again, unexpectedly, that's going to put them back I mean, in their, their career growth and in their ability to earn an uh, equitable income. So, um, you know, again, sadly, another, another casualty of the pandemic is going to be uh, robust health care and women's advancement in that industry. And Seth, that's forced uh, a lot of people to retire or to go part time. And, and as if, if we look at there's a thousand jobs open right now in one place and multiply that times however many other places that are in need of uh, health care workers at this point, um, we have a problem. And I remember, maybe you guys do, too, way back when at the beginning of this, when there were efforts um, I think some quite successful to provide child care for healthcare workers. And I remember thinking, oh, that's interesting. But I really didn't have a, a good sense of how important it was. This piece brings you back to how important it is because these people can't function if they don't have their home taken care of. Right. Um, I think I think it's once again, um, there's a difference between healthcare administration and healthcare providers. Some of the emergency room people I talk to frequently um, in our coverage area um, have mentioned that they are hiring too. And I think maybe um, those who do the hiring and how it's all laid out at a hospital maybe are behind where the world has gone to because they've mentioned to me that maybe maybe it would be better to have, you know, people mobile, you know, um, visits that are to the house, um, mobile nurses, um, they, you know, things where like a um, a doctor is actually on an ambulance crew and they can visit a house and they can take care of an issue 
um, at, at the house or in, in the ambulance. Um, and I think healthcare is just radically changing like everything else. And maybe um, some people want, you know, the providers in their chair at the hospital and it's just not how it's going to work. And maybe they're slow to the, to the draw. And if you're mobile, you know, you're closer to home and you can be home and you can be um, around your kids or, and do those types of things and still do your job. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, COVID has forced a lot of adaptations. Uh, the biggest one, of course, um, New York City just announced that they're shutting all their schools down again. Um, did it quite abruptly, just, you know, in the middle of the week, which was a little odd. But here's Boston Mayor Marty Walsh last week speaking about the pause to in-person schooling. We're going to continue to take a very cautious approach, prioritize the safety of all of our students, families, teachers, and staff in all of our school communities. And we will prioritize the well-being of our highest-need students. All right, so that means the highest-need students will get a chance to go back in person. It's been demonstrated that they need that even more than than all the kids who need it uh, in general. Um, But for now, fully remote. And I was taken, um, Seth, with this uh, number of stories that uh, your papers have done about the ways in which people are responding to that. So first, let's talk about the Charlestown parents who are pushing back on Mayor Walsh is saying we're going fully remote. So they've started their own little group of uh, we're going to do something different. I'm not quite sure what they're going to do, but they're mad about it. Right, right. Like everything else, it started at the playground, you know. <laughs> I'm, I'm ticked off. So am I, you know, and, and then everybody is. Um, so, um, yeah, I mean, basically what they're doing is calling for a plan. I, you know, they have younger kids, most of them, some of them older kids, high need students um, with autism and, you know, general education students. It's a, it's a, a very mixed group, a varied group, um, and, and they're just asking for a plan, something innovative. You know, um, one of the one of the um, parents said, you know, we're, you know, in the hub of, of innovation in Boston, but we don't even have a plan and not even a creative one, <laughs> you know. Um, so so they really would like some sort of plan, something interesting, something that, that you know, let's let's take a chance um, because uh, it, frankly, it just isn't working for, for the majority of, of students and parents. It may look good. It may feel like it's okay. Um, they may say there's 90, 95 percent attendance. But, um, you know, on the other end in the house, it's not it's not all shiny as maybe um, it's it's played out to be. And I think that's what these parents are saying. I've heard it in Everett from parents, too, um, who are saying, you know, it's not it's not playing out the way you think it is on the other side of the camera. It's really hard. I want to move on to these other two and then everybody jump in the pool. Um, so what often happens in these in, in these scenarios, which the same thing that the Charlestown uh, parents are asking for is innovation in the moment. And I'm just quite taken with in Everett at the Everett Pioneer Charter School. They took a stand and said, OK, students are out, but we're going to have um, the teachers in their classroom, which seems like a simple thing, but apparently has been quite successful. Yeah, they've, they've had a... a a great run of it. So all the teachers are there. It is, um, you know, it's a smaller school than maybe a larger public school district, but they've been able to do it. And the, the good part is that it's really helped the students and the teachers tremendously. You know, they're all in their own little bubble in their classroom, but they have, uh, you know, the smart boards, which are um, connected to the internet. You know, they can um, write on their whiteboards. They can actually do science experiments. They have space in their classroom. Uh, to be able to teach and, you know, the, the things that we've heard, you know, like, you know, the dog runs in and starts barking, disrupts the lesson, all the kids laugh, and then they never get back on track. It doesn't happen when they're in the classroom. 
They have all their supplies, but for also for the kids, it's helped them to be more focused, the teacher said, even down to a little thing like the school bell. Like they kept the school bells on and the school bell rings and all the kids hear it and it feels, you know, normal. And lastly, in your group of innovative, interesting looks at what's happening in this moment. Now, I, I would I'm just very surprised by this. So uh, <laughs> these are teachers again in the Everett uh, public schools. People are demanding that the camera be on because that signifies that you're connected and interested. And these teachers are saying, actually, not so much that they've if they just let the kids do what they want, um, that there are reasons sometimes the kids don't want to turn it on and that it has turned out actually um, as a way to begin to engage some kids who might not otherwise have been engaged. Explain. Right. Yeah, no, it's 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 true. This is the big um, discussion. If you've ever tried to get a teenager in this remote world to turn on their camera, it's it can it can get dicey. Um, it's very hard. So the older the kids are, the, the harder it is to get them to turn it on. Um, the younger kids kind of like it. You know, they like to see each other. It's fun. But for anywhere from seventh grade up, it becomes a fight. And the teachers fight it. The parents fight it. But these teachers said as that's how they started, too. But as time went on, they realized that, you know, they're they're going into a very personal space. Number one, I mean, it's the first time the teachers, most of the teenagers are maybe in their bedroom. Um, and, you know, the teachers looking at their bedroom, you know, their classmates can see the posters or that they didn't make their bed. And, you know, they don't want them seeing that on camera. Um, it could be that they're in a, a living situation where, you know, they could be crowded around a table with cousins and aunts and uncles. And it's just nobody. They don't want people to see that. Um, so the teachers have sort of taken a much lighter um, role in it. And they, they've found different ways to to check, whether it's in the chat um, whether it's in a little uh, a breakout room, they've been able to to really mitigate the, the whole fight and, and just move forward with learning without a camera if the kids don't want it. So, Sue, again, which one of these really um, resonates with you? Because I, 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 it's counterintuitive about the camera. I think it's interesting that the teachers are in school and the kids aren't. And um, and bravo to the Charles, Charlestown uh, parents who are saying there must be other ways to do this. That's my take. Yeah, I mean, bravo, bravo to all the parents and, and the educators and the administrators for, you know, being innovative and um, doing their best. I mean, my kid, who's, you know, no longer really a kid, who's 20 years old now, has been homeschooled or online schooled since seventh grade in one form or another due to chronic illnesses. And to underscore Seth's point, um, she went to the International Academy, which is a K-12 uh, uh, tuition uh, middle school, then she went to the Commonwealth Academy, TECA, which is the Massachusetts Free Public Online School, and then she did a mix of online learning uh, at the uh, John D. O'Brien here in Boston and in-person learning, and now she's doing online learning at Bunker Hill Community College, and it changes uh, what she's comfortable doing or not doing uh, changes as she changes. So I, uh, I, I, I salute the teachers for understanding that the strict, you know, what you need to do in order to be successful, especially during this pandemic, has to be adaptable. So uh, I, I just, I'm just filled with gratitude reading those stories uh, that Seth uh, covered about about just how how adaptable everyone is being. Again, you would think that in this town of innovation, there could be some other stuff going on here. Well, yeah, the, the question here is like, does it does it scale, right? Because uh, right now at the state level, the, the governor and, and uh, 
the teachers union and, and local officials are, are going back and forth uh, sometimes in the media about um, exactly how to, how to handle all this. And uh, you know, I, I'll say this, something that's jumped out at me is uh, as all this is happening too, you know, casinos are remaining open. It's one of those things where I know everybody's doing their best and working hard, but, but it seems like the, the priorities are, are somewhat, somewhat askew if, if casinos are still open and, and everybody's still, um, you know, waging war over uh, what policies are best and, and whether the remote works or, or, you know, whether teachers should be in the classroom and, and students should be um, uh, listening remotely. Um, you know, I, it, I, I'm, I'm glad to always see innovation, but it just the question is, does it, does it scale? Hmm. Well, that's a that's a legitimate question. I want to move on, Sue, to uh, the MBTA announcements that they're going to have to make some changes, some cut, really, let's just call it what it is, cutbacks. Um, one in particular is about canceling the E-line past Brigham Circle, and that has really raised a ruckus. Um, of course, this is due to COVID-forced um, cutbacks because lots of people are not riding public transportation, but... Uh, the people who are opposed and who use this line particularly are including Ayanna Presley, who's uh, said this is a this is really a transit justice uh, issue. Are very upset. Um, tell tell us about it. Yeah, I don't understand this at all. <laughs> you know, this is actually uh, the line that I I I drive over. I don't use it, but I drive over it the most. It abuts Mission Hill and Jamaica Plain. Uh, the story in the Globe made very clear that there are a number of essential places that uh, from uh, Brigham Circle to Heath Street that it goes. There's the um, the North American Indian Center, uh, which is right there on the Jamaica Plain line. There's also the uh, the Veterans Administration Hospital that's there. The VA is at the end of Heath Street. And I see veterans and folks using that hospital get off that line all the time. And it's also busy, right? I also see people using it. There's a hotel there. There are tourists using it. It's not like it's some extension. I think in the olden days, the very olden days, the Bowdoin stop was always that stop that no one was ever using. But this is a vibrant, well-used, uh, populated stop. I can't imagine that that cutting this small extension, I mean, I, I don't, I, I think it's probably less than uh, a half a mile or so uh, from Brigham Circle to Heath. I don't understand what the, what the rationale is about it, especially since I think the line has to go there to turn around, right? Yeah. So it's it's not even as if it's an end stop. So um, I think we're we're going to have to be ready to address the issues that the MBA, MBTA is offering for cuts. Uh, and this one is just an outrageous one, and I couldn't agree more with uh, Representative Ayanna Presley that it just seems um, kind of personal, and uh, there there must be other ways for them to address this this shortage. City Councilor uh, and mayoral candidate Michelle Wu in this piece called it a cruel hoax um, again. And one of the things that has been said about these cuts, or the MBTA has said, is that they're temporary, that, you know, when full strength returns, um, these things will be revisited. Now, how do you assess temporary in this context? Well, that's one of the main questions because we don't know how long this is going to last. And and the other big question is uh, is federal aid going to sh- to to show up? Um, you know, under under the Biden administration, you know, the the T was struggling before the pandemic, um, and and these temporary cuts could turn into permanent ones if 
uh, if folks aren't watchful. You know, I, I understand a, a potential surgical approach, but this, this seems to this seems to take the knife uh, pretty deeply in, in multiple places. I mean, certainly on the on the South Shore, they're uh, you know they're talking about eliminating the ferry. Which, to, to be fair, you know the on before the pandemic, the the a, a monthly pass for the ferry ran three hundred dollars, which is out of reach for many 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 people. But it did take cars off the road, and and it's one of those things where the MBTA um, is in a tight spot. And it's not clear if if there's going to be someone um, riding in to to save them. Pardon pardon the inadvertent pun. Yeah, this is I don't I'm not I don't Seth. You got any insight? <laughs> well, I mean that yeah that E line has been um, that's been a battleground since the like, 90s, maybe mm-hmm. 80s. I really don't even know um, because you know it used to go all the way to Forest Hills, and they actually built a turnaround at Forest Hills for it that never got used. Um, and then they paved over the tracks. I mean, there, there's been a fight on that forever. Going from Brigham Circle to the VA was a compromise. Um, I'm not surprised that they, they took that out now. That I don't think the T has ever been in favor of that. I will say this. Um, that is a, from, from Brigham Circle the, to there is very dangerous if you're a rider because you walk out from the middle mm-hmm. under traffic. I actually saved an old man's life one time there who mm-hmm. walked out. I pulled his shirt as he was walking right into a car about 10, oh my God. 15 years ago. So, you know, they've always wanted to eliminate it because it, it bears the risk of, you know, impatient Boston drivers blowing past the, tro- the trolley and, and they hit people. Um, so they've always wanted to get rid of it for that reason. But Sue makes an excellent point on the VA because it is such a uh, outpost um, where it's at there in JP. And it is mm-hmm. extremely hard to get to. And the 39 bus is so crowded and in COVID times, who wants to ride a crowded bus? Um, so I don't know. There's got to be a different way. If they had a solution, like a, a bus route, but that that was used a lot of buses, <laughs> that would work. I mean, to Seth's point, it is in the middle of the street on both sides. And you're supposed to know that if the trolley is stopping, you're supposed to stop and not speed by while the door's open. And a little tiny stop sign comes out. But, um, you know, they're not offering a solution. Yeah, I I don't think that's gonna fly. Um, if for no other reason, just for the for the veterans, I, I just I don't think that's gonna fly. But I mean, but I'm sure they have to throw out a whole lot of stuff because they're gonna have to land on some cuts, and we all know that as 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 Sue as you mentioned. Uh, let me move on to a story that's uh, really interesting, not only because of what it is, but also but the driving force behind it, and that um, is this new um, legal cannabis store uh, that's happening in Chelsea. And one of the driving forces behind it is Marvin Gilmore, 96-year-old Marvin Gilmore, which all of us all of us know him. Um, I did a story with him a long time ago because he's one of the few Americans, let alone black Americans, to ever have been awarded a Foreign Legion Award um, for his service. But he's a longtime business owner, um, just well-known, and he doesn't smoke pot, as it says here, but but this is the cannabis industry, and it's uh, finally one of the equity licensees that we have been blocked, it seems, forever from opening up. So this is now open, ribbon-cut, 3,000-square-foot store. This is amazing, Seth. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a beautiful store. I've, I've uh, had a tour of it a couple of times. Um, it is a crew from Cambridge who has taken the opportunity, but I, I have to say, so it is an equity applicant, but also in an economic empowerment area. You know, it, it's an expedited application. It's um, one of the first to open. 
Um, didn't get as much play as maybe the one in uh, on Blue Hill Avenue that opened. Right. But um, really, if you go in there, I mean, the whole idea behind that and what Mr. Gilmore's idea is, is that this is a wealth building opportunity, particularly for people who need a second chance, who kind of, you know, got a raw deal um, in the war on drugs, particularly with marijuana. And um, if you go in there, yes, these are the people working in there and they're excited about it. Um, they believe that it is an opportunity. Um, they have hired correctly. That's really how, how Mr. Gilmore sees it, you know, and his, his story is like it's a million pages long. I mean, <laughs> we right. can talk all day about him. <laughs> He's very, very accomplished and very interesting. And he sees this as, as the next thing and um, actually a healing opportunity in, in many mm -hmm. ways, a way to, as he said at the ribbon cutting, you know, this is going to put money in their pocket so that these young men and women can buy houses in Chelsea and um, and be part of uh, its prosperity and, and not get pushed out. Right. Sue. Marvin Gilmore, my God. Um, I, Marvin also owned the Western Front Reggae Bar on Western Avenue in Cambridge. So I think he might know a thing or two about the marijuana, even if he wasn't uh, using it. Marvin was, um, I, I know we should talk about the marijuana, but I just want to talk about Marvin. He, he was uh, at the Boston Phoenix when I was a salesperson. Uh, Western Front was my client. And the thing, one of the many things to love about Marvin Gilmore is that to renew his contract, he demanded that I take him out to lunch somewhere, very fancy. <laughs> and once a year, the first time I went, I was like, oh God, I got to go with this guy and go for lunch and, you know, renew the 52-week contract, which was a big deal. But it was such an enjoyable experience and he is such a wonderful human being that um, I, I often would take him out more than once once a year just to spend time with him. So uh, I was so thrilled to see that uh, I saw the Western Front name on the, on the, on the, uh, store and I was hoping it was Marvin Gilmore. So uh, it was just such a great bright spot to see this story. West, Western Front was the name of his club uh, again uh, on uh, Western Avenue years ago. To, so he retained the name in this in this setting. Do you have a Marvin Gil Gilmore story? <laughs> uh, I, I unfortunately I do not. I, I you know it's it's one of those things. Uh, I, I I covered the 2016 uh, campaign to to legalize uh, marijuana when I was at Mass Live and. And, uh, you know, it's, it's still, I, I sometimes have to think of it and do the math. I'm like, wait, it's been four years. And, you know, the, the fact that it's still taking this long for stores like this to open and, and just, and thinking back to, uh, if you, if you remember the, the campaign, uh, against the ballot question, it was very much had a sky is falling mentality of, of marijuana stores on every corner, like, uh, you know, like tobacco stores or something like that. Um, and, and it's, and it's clear what's happening here is economic development, economic growth, and, uh, the, the sky, the sky has not fallen, uh, four years later. Right. All right. One last thing. And that is, uh, Governor Baker has, uh, nominated, uh, Serge Georges, who is a Dorchester native and currently the associate justice at the Dorchester division of the Boston Municipal Court to the highest court, to the Supreme Judicial Court. And uh, with his approval, and we're assuming that'll take place, um, he will become one of three jurists of color on the Supreme Judicial Court. And that has never happened before in history. Um, not only is Serge Georges um, widely respected and admired, everybody calls him a genuine nice guy. Um, response, Ken, I'll start with you. It's a bright spot in when 2020 doesn't have many. I believe he's also uh, one of very few uh, district court judges uh, to make it on the court. Yes. Um, uh, David Lowy, I believe, is the other one. It's really going to be interesting to see just how the court 
really evolves and handles cases because so much of it is is just watching um, the interactions and 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 seeing what comes out. Okay, um, Sue, and just such such great uh, tremendous Boston roots and Massachusetts roots. Not that that's not the most important thing, but you know, from Dorchester, um, uh, I think he went to Boston College. Suffolk University. So uh, it's just, I think it's just always great to see, to see homegrown folks do so well. And uh, again, as, as I think it pointed out, uh, long overdue and finally putting us in the right direction. Seth? Often we talk about, you know, being able to see yourself in a position and these um, uh, appeals court judges and sometimes the SJC uh, folks often go to elementary schools and talk about what they do. And I can recall a couple of a very diverse group of, of jurists going to a school in Charlestown. And some of the kids are like, wow, you're from Boston and you look like me. How'd you get this job? And that's that's important, too. You know, kids and young people are watching this as well. All right. Well, we'll have to leave it there. I thank all of you for joining me. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Kelly. Ken Doomchus is the digital editor for the Boston Business Journal. Seth Daniel is the senior reporter for the Independent News Group, which includes the Chelsea Record and Revere Journal. Sue O'Connell is a political commentator for NECN and co-publisher of Bay Windows and the South End News. Coming up, think you know all about Boston? Think again. Three local co-authors comb through centuries of greater Boston's history to discover untold stories from underrepresented communities. That's next. This is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. Callie Crossley, and this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. And now for the part of the show we call Lanya, that's Creole for something extra. Boston sure is known for its history, but the people most well known about the city are largely white and male. Think Samuel Adams, Paul Revere, and Henry David Thoreau. Some of that has changed during recent decades as Boston's all-black 54th Regiment, for example, has helped highlight Boston's African-American history. Still, most Boston guidebooks will lead you to the Freedom Trail and past sites where events like the Boston Tea Party occurred. But is there more to know beyond the facts of these well-told narratives? Three local co-authors present a new guidebook, A People's Guide to Greater Boston. Boston, focusing on the overlooked stories of underrepresented communities. Joining me remotely, all three co-authors of A People's Guide to Greater Boston, Joe Nevins, professor of geography at Vassar College. Hi, Joe. Hi, Kelly. Thanks for having us. Seren Mouliar, a coordinator of Enquinto Cinco, a movement-building space in downtown Boston and managing editor of Socialism and Democracy, a journal of strategy. Welcome, Seren. Hello, Kelly. And Alini McCrackus, project manager at Homeowners Rehab Inc., a nonprofit affordable housing developer in Cambridge. Hello, Alini. Hi, Kelly. Thanks for having us. I'm glad to have all of you. Joe, I'm going to start with you. You were the point person for pulling this all together. You knew the person out in Los Angeles who'd done the People's Guide to Los Angeles. And you also knew the other two people who ended up being your co-authors in this. So why did you see a need to create a guide not based on geography, per se, but on the social justice history of Boston? 
Well, in many ways, it, you spoke to that at the beginning, because there's a, a tendency in the in the books that cover Boston to focus on the places that are very well known already, such as the Freedom Trail. Right? And not only does this highlight a particular cast of characters, if you will, you know, as you suggested earlier, you know, largely white and powerful people, it also leaves out the neighborhoods, right, places outside the, the core, the center of the city of Boston. At the same time, we wanted to think about Boston as a region, right? not only the city itself, but a larger region that encompasses a great diversity of peoples and places, peoples and places that are tied together in important ways, but one of which is massive inequality. The city of Boston and the greater Boston region are one of, is one of the most unequal cities and one of the most unequal regions in the United States. This is hardly an accident. This is something that's been produced and struggled over over centuries. And so in putting together, trying to envision a people's guide to greater Boston, we wanted to bring those underlying stories and processes and the related sites to light as providing sort of a new lens to understand what the city was, is, and what it might become in the sense that the book has an explicitly political goal and that we want to help support efforts to bring about a city that's radically democratic, socially and ecologically just and inclusive of all the peoples that live here. Now, you've described this as a historical geography. So I just want to give you an opportunity to just outline for people what, what that really means. And so in addition to focusing on particular sites, so we, you know, we bring the reader to places like Lawrence and Lynn and Lowell, in addition to the neighborhoods of the city of Boston, like South Boston, Roxbury, Dorchester, Jamaica Plain, we try to tell a story about the making of Greater Boston as a region over four centuries. Right? And what we mean by this, by region, is that it's an area that shares a lot, that's characterized by strong ties within and lots of divisions. So we explore these ties and divisions, how they were made and challenged and struggled over. And we do this you know, you know, by, by trying to create not a comprehensive, but a suggestive portrait of what the city is. So we were very conscious in making decisions about what to include and what to exclude. Uh, how could we best produce something that gives, gives the reader a sense of the complexity, again, not only of the city, but of the, uh, the greater Boston region as a whole? Mm-hmm. All right, Seren, you were all grad students together. That's how you all got to know each other. And I was interested in in your saying that long, long ago, uh, Joe, whom we just heard from, gave you a tour of Boston back in the day. So I was curious about what did he show you then? And if he were giving you the same tour now, courtesy of your own book, how different would that be? No, it would be very different. Not that Joe was wrong back then. Basically, when I first moved to Boston from Los Angeles, Joe was among the people who warned me about how hyper-segregated what was to become my city is. And uh, with that warning, we visited uh, different parts of the city. At that point, we also did it by car rather than by foot. And he pointed out the different hills in Dorchester. And we also looked at uh, East Boston as well. In that time, both Joe and I were relatively innocent of the deep history of our city. I think we were both profoundly uh, aware that there was a lot more than we were seeing. But we, in the course of our work on the city, not only sort of came to understand how the segregation came to be, but also how intersectional many of the movements in the past were. And that was something that really surprised me. And I 
uh, I suspect my co-authors, Eleni and Joe as well, as to how people in so many different social locations collaborated and challenged the powers that be to make a greater city, a better city, and, and a city that we, we would desire to live in. And this goes, you know, we can think of the so-called mill girls in Lowell uh, acting in solidarity with, um, with enslaved people, even though their livelihood depended on cotton coming up from the South. So, so this, these kinds of intersectionality is what really discovering it and understanding it through history is something that really came through sort of between the then and the now uh, of our understanding of the city. Mm. So, Eleni, there are sites that you mentioned. I'm, I'm flipping, I flipped through the book and found the exact sites. And then from there, you tell broader stories. Did you have any idea what you might find, I guess is what I'm saying? Because there are so many. I looked at my, my bookshelf. I have about 16 books on Boston. So, you know, you wonder, my goodness, what else could you find? And I wondered if, as you were starting this work, did you have a clue about what you might discover? So, the way that I became a part of this project was I was a senior college student in Joe's class at Vassar College. And I started out as a research assistant for this project. And, and I was really there looking at sites and talking to local history uh, societies and communities to understand what they thought was important to tell through this book. And so we learned a lot that way, just kind of gathering information. And then also for me, uh, I grew up in Cambridge and I went to public schools in Cambridge. And there were a few sites in the book that, that came out of uh, interactions that I had with various teachers or you know, parents of friends. The one that I like to tell is the story about the Polaroid Revolutionary Workers Movement, PRWM. And so that was a group of Polaroid workers who uh, organized around the use of Polaroid film in apartheid South Africa. And I had heard of it because in my high school history class, where my teacher took us to another classroom to learn about this movement, because the woman who was part of the founding of PRWM was a teacher at my high school, Caroline Hunter. And so she told us the story. And as part of this project, I kind of remembered this story. And, and so there I, I really learned, you know, much deeper story, not just the five minute version through high school, but the actual implications of this really incredible movement that was one of the first boycott movements against apartheid South Africa. Again, in Cambridge, uh, we looked at the Women's Center, which started out of an organization of women, um, 888 Memorial Drive. And you might have heard of the, the movie that came out of this story, um, Left on Pearl. It came out a few years ago. We actually did a whole a whole segment on this show about Left on Pearl and, and that movement. Yes. <laughs> Go ahead. Oh, great. <laughs> So I, you know, I happen to live down the street from the Women's Center currently, and I walk by it all the time, but I didn't know the, the story behind it. So uncovering these really rich stories of intersectional movements was really rewarding. So you were Cambridge primarily. Seren, what area were you diving into for the sites and stories? Well, you know, we, we all wrote about virtually all parts of the greater Boston area, and so for me, certainly Chelsea and Haverhill and Plymouth were, were areas that I specialized in to a certain degree. And we discussed all the areas and all the sites with each other. What stood out for you in the way that Eleni was surprised by the, the Women's Center and the Left on Pearl film and, and that whole history? Was there something in the, in the physical areas that you focused on, even though all of you uh, talked about the stories, that surprised you? 
one of the movements that I, I also knew about for almost from a textbook was the Combahee River Collective. So not so much Cambridge, but Dorchester. And th that's where the Combahee River Collective was founded uh, out of meetings in people's living rooms. And uh, of course, they, they, they later come to meet more regularly at the Women's Centre in Cambridge. But this the sense in which activists in different movements get together, even though they're often seen as uh, very discrete and separate entities, that's what sort of, again, was surprising for me. So, Joe, first I want to know if there were any stories in the areas that you concentrated on that surprised you. And then second, the whole idea of the of the overlap of, of so many of the movements people don't know about. And I just picked up, for example, on page 66 in your book, The Common Cupboard. I never heard of that based in Chinatown. And this was a meeting place for socialists and anarchists. Who knew it was a restaurant located in the basement of a rooming house? I mean, that's very interesting. Yes, there were certainly many. And the Common Cupboard was one of them, not least because Common Street, which is, you know, was in Chinatown, no longer exists, right? Like so many places in the city of Boston and in the greater region, places have been destroyed, in, the, in this case, in the name of urban renewal. But a place that really... Um, stands out to me is how we came across something that took place in City Square Park, which is in Charlestown. We were looking into a related site, a very nearby site in, in Charlestown, at the Charlestown Navy Yard. And in looking at the Digital Commonwealth, which is a repository of photos of, you know, the Boston Public Library and a lot of research institutions in and around the area, we encountered a photo of four men, three of whom were military officers, the other who turned out to be an ambassador standing in front of a, a Nazi SWAT sticker flag on a ship in the Charlestown Navy Yard. This was May 1934. One was the ambassador from Germany and three were German naval officers. What we found out was that the Karlsruhe, which was the name of the battleship, was part of Hitler's Navy, had, was moored there as part of a goodwill tour. Well, on May 17, 1934, it turns out, hundreds of anti-Nazi protesters marched from the North End to Charlestown to protest the very presence of the Karlsruhe. Joining these protesters were pro-Nazi, pro-Germany uh, demonstrators from uh, Harvard University, among other places. And this led to a riot. Uh, right across the street from City Square Park is a police station. And it was a essentially a police riot. And the police beat up, for the most part, the anti-Nazi protesters. And this was something that was celebrated in the newspapers, like the Herald and the Globe. It was reported largely uncritically. Later that night at the Copley Plaza Hotel in Copley Square, there was an official welcoming dinner in the, in the Grand Ballroom to welcome the crew of the Karlsruhe. And as was reported in the newspaper, they hung the U.S., German, and Nazi swastika flags from the ceiling. And let me just share with you how the Herald reported on this, you know, on the Karlsruhe's visit. This gives you a sense of how fawning the coverage was. Each member of the ship, I'm quoting the Herald now, has this common denominator, an impeccable appearance, a knowledge of English, and a charming old world courtesy. They were, in short, a joy to the feminine heart and made that poor fellow, the average American, seem a bit shabby by contrast. End quote. So what this story demonstrates is not only uh, how uncritical many in the Boston and Massachusetts political establishment were towards the Nazis, but essentially how welcoming they were. 
anti-Semitism was a very serious problem in Boston during this time. At the same time, what the story shows is that there were many people, in this case, trade, trade unionists, members of the Communist Party, uh, students, Jewish community activists who organized to oppose this. If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and I'm speaking with Joe Nevins, Seren Mudliar, and Eleni Makrakis, three co-authors of A People's Guide to Greater Boston. We're speaking about the often untold history of the region. Joe, I'm I'm sure you're—I won't be the first person to say that the People's Guide title and your focus uh, in this book reminds one of A People's History of the United States, Howard— Zen, long deceased historian whose book was and continues to be quite influential in the telling of American history. Is that something you wanted to to sort of be like, or was that just was a coincidental that it, it kind of had a similar focus? Well, I wouldn't say it's coincidental at all. I mean, certainly Howard Zinn's book inspired the way we thought about approaching Greater Boston. It also inspired the larger series. I mean, as you mentioned earlier, this book follows the People's Guide to Los Angeles. And now there's a whole series of books coming out about different cities and areas of the United States under this People's Guide series. So our approach is explicitly one from below, from the political, economic, and social and ideological margins. This is what we're calling a people's perspective. And as such, the book explicitly privileges the desires, hopes, and struggles of those who are on the, you know, on the receiving ends of, of unjust forms of power and those who seek to challenge those inequalities. And so in terms of the stories that we tell, right, we very much feature and privilege the experiences of people of African descent, you know, women, workers. Uh, people on the ideological margins, right? People who are typically not centered in stories of Greater Boston, but whose stories are central to the making of this region. So, Eleni, one of the things that you said was that uh, this is an expanding, as Joe is explaining and as, as Seren has has mentioned, of what people understand of American history that, and in fact, you've said there's more than one view of it. I, I don't want to put words in your mouth. What do you mean by that? More than one view of American history? I mean, this is, you know, I think back to what I learned in um, elementary, middle and high school and what I learned in college. And what I mean by more than one view is, you know, who's telling the story, who has been included in the story. When, when we started this project, we looked at all the existing guidebooks of Boston's history, and we felt that a lot of those stories were missing those key viewpoints, a diverse group of people that made the city and are not represented in the kind of mainstream guidebook that you find in a bookstore. Seren, this is interesting that you have a book, a physical book, and you have uh, quite a bit of site, a number of sites, I think 160 that you've uh, thoroughly researched and noted in the book. But yet this is not done, that this project, A People's Guide, continues. You've added more to it. There's a, a website. As you say, you're bringing the tools of academia to a tourist guide. Tell me how you're continuing to expand what's, what's in the, the physical paper book. You know, this is necessarily an incomplete project, given that in addition to telling the stories of people who are excluded from history, 
we're also telling the stories of people who, in that exclusion from history, have developed alternative visions of the future. So the present itself is incomplete, and they are in the process of making history. So even if we were to successfully deal with everything in the past, there's still new sites being created every moment. So how do we accommodate that? With the website, we'll be adding sites as people suggest them to us and as our further work uh, uncovers. And also, uh, we will be doing things like developing fold-out maps uh, for different parts of Greater Boston that help tell the story both of the people's history and history that is currently in the making. I should say, too, that the series, the People's Guide series of books, has a common website that's being prepared and that will feature stories from other cities and other sites as well. So, Joe, so I'm an average tourist. I, I come to Greater Boston and I have my array of, of uh, tourist guides to pick up. I pick up your book and, and likely another. How do you want me to use this guide? We would want you to use it not only to visit some of the familiar sites, you know, in and around the downtown area, because we do take you to some of the familiar sites like Faneuil Hall and, and Fenway Park. Right? But in doing that, we tell you a very different story than a typical guidebook is going to tell you. In the case of Faneuil Hall, what we tell you is about the founding of the Anti-Imperialist League in the aftermath of the U.S. attack on the Spanish colonies, right? This so-called Spanish-American War. So what we'd like you to do is sort of put into conversation with the stories that you've already heard or that you're hearing, hearing from more conventional sources. At the same time, we want to encourage you to get off the beaten track. So in addition to having sites, we have a number of tours. We have a Sacco and Benzetti tour. We have a we have a Native American tour. We also have a Malcolm, as in Malcolm X, and Martin, Martin Luther King tour. So we would encourage you to go to Dale Street in Roxbury, right, where Mal Malcolm X lived uh, for a number of years. We would encourage you to go to the site of the Charlestown Prison, right, where Malcolm X was held. It's now the site of Bunker Hill Community College. It's also the site uh, where uh, Sacco and Minzetti were executed, right? the last execution in the state of Massachusetts, which took place in 1927. And we want you to get outside the city of Boston to go to places like Lawrence and Lynn, which are very far off the, uh, the beaten track of tourists, to understand how they both reflect right, and help to produce Boston as a city, a city writ large. Seren, is this a perfect time in some way for this book and this focus? One of the things we had hoped with the title of People's Guide is to actually present the book to the people in person through face-to-face -face meetings, and yet that is denied to us. And then when we look at our book, the reason it's denied to us is at the moment not merely a pandemic, but an inept public sector response to the pandemic. And as a consequence, we, we were forced to think about how pandemics have played out in the past. And indeed, we tell us stories of several other pandemics that have shaped Boston history. Aside from that, though, the fact that people are rising up and rebelling not only against Donald Trump, but against a whole history of enslavement, a history of uh, racial subjugation, as well as questioning other forms of of domination makes this book particularly appropriate. It's something we hope that will 
inform people as we uh, will not only reciprocate by chronicling their actions in the future, but also we hope that uh, awareness of how other struggles played out and sort of need the, the, need the batons of previous struggles picked up so that we may complete the, the, the quest for justice. Alina, last question, and that is, you know, this is a guide ostensibly for tourists, except a lot of people may not be touring and many of us may be touring in our own communities. And uh, you have talked about discovering in your own community uh, many stories that you didn't know before. So speak to those people who pick up this book who live here. Absolutely. We hope this book is not just for tourists from out of town, but really for people who are in this city and who either have lived here a long time or have only just moved here and want to learn more about, you know, why the city is the way it is. Things like, you know, why redlining has shaped the city in in ways that are segregated. Um, I think those are, are things that people are really starting to think about. You know, why is it that certain neighborhoods have certain amenities or certain parks? Or why are there these organizations like the Women's Center that I spoke about previously that continue to exist in really important institutions in our city? Um, you know, where can we uh, draw inspiration from in our own community. We don't have to look very far to find that inspiration and to move forward with our our values and you know what we want to see change in our communities, uh, whether that's on you know environmental issues or um, issues of race or issues of housing. There's so many different ones that we touch on in the book, and we hope that people use these stories to move forward with their own um, actions and organizing. Thank you all so much. Thank, Thank you, Kelly. Kelly. Thank you. Joseph Nevins is a professor of geography at Vassar College. Seren Moodliar is a coordinator of Encuentro Cinco, a movement-building space in downtown Boston, and managing editor of Socialism and Democracy, a journal of strategy. Eleni McCrackus is a project manager at Homeowners Rehab, Inc., a nonprofit affordable housing developer in Cambridge. Well, that's it for this week's edition of Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. We're on the web at gbh.org news, Under the Radar with Callie Crossley, and available for download wherever you get your podcasts. Under the Radar with Callie Crossley is a production of GBH, produced by Hannah Ubeli and engineered by Dave Goodman. Kate Dario is our intern. Our theme music is Fish and Chips by We Are Two Saxies, Grace Kelly and Leo P. See you here at 6 p.m. next Sunday. I'm Callie Crossley. Thanks for listening.